Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're offering a free consulting call to anyone interested in moving abroad. Whether you're thinking about retiring somewhere warm, starting an international career, or becoming a digital nomad, we're ready to help you think through the next steps in your journey. Send us a message at expatempire.com to schedule your call today. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah, it's great to connect with you and hear a bit more about your story. Definitely sounds like you've had a lot of uh, adventures on the entrepreneurial side and, of course, the travel side as a digital nomad as well. So eager to jump into it. But I guess a good place for us to start is if you could tell us a bit about your background, where you're originally from, where around the world you've been so far or traveled to. I'm sure you can shorten the list or abbreviate a bit. And of course, where you're based right now, that would be great. Absolutely. So I'm originally from New Zealand. In fact, I'm doing this recording in my parents' house. I've just got back to New Zealand after a four-year um, stint, partly during COVID, partly due to COVID, I should say. And yeah, so I, I went to university in New Zealand. I left home at 17. I went to a different island university, moved to Australia, worked there professionally in the um, major infrastructure field for about 18 years. And then eight years, roughly, being a digital nomad, Thailand, was into a place and I traveled around to various countries, key, key countries, Thailand, Bali, Portugal, Croatia, Serbia, uh, Mexico. And I think that's all. There was a number of mining countries in there as well. I think 20, 25 countries, 30 countries total in that eight years. That's, that's a very potted history. But essentially, I started off, you know, say engineering in the engineering field, ran a team of um, 20 direct reports in my last major corporate role. I had 60 people for a project team across five different time zones and three countries. And basically, there was a there was a market shift. I could see that I was going to have to lay off most of my team over the next year, and I just didn't have the heart to do that. So I looked through the field, decided to jump into doing my own business, and moved to Thailand basically as a starting basis, you know, the, the nomad hub of the world, I guess. Right, my, right. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's a great place definitely to start your adventure, but how did you decide then to go to Thailand and what was your idea as far as your business? Did you already have an idea in mind or were you kind of figuring it out on the go? I had no idea about the business. I was figuring it out on the go. The job I was in was taking all my mental bandwidth and I just basically, my plan was to go to Thailand and figure something out. And the reason why Thailand was basically, I was listening to a podcast at the time, the Tropical MBA, and they talked about Bali and, and Thailand and Chiang Mai just had the appeal to me that was pretty random I just booked a ticket visa all that sort of stuff and jumped on a plane and Chiang Mai as, as we both know is it's a brilliant digital nomad hub there's tons of people there doing related you know doing various things but starting off digital nomad careers or you know well progressed and that was a great it was a great place to start but to start with I just did I did all the random the typical uh, digital nomad type entrepreneurial businesses. I tried to start a website business. I tried to make websites. I ended up selling pro- a, a product on Amazon, which was an interesting story in itself. And none of those really took off. Um, but I spent a couple of years doing that and yeah, jumping around different countries for mm-hmm. visa reasons and the like. Right. So as you were thinking about different business uh, you know, ideas or alternatives, obviously, yeah, there are some 
uh, ones that are more common, let's say. And it sounds like you tried a lot of those with, you know, differing levels of success and maybe pivoting to different things. But, um, you know, what gave you that confidence to even start a business and to, to make this jump in the first place? I mean, it's obviously, you know, you, you, it sounds like you, you know, quit that job or, or you, you sort of took, went out of the corporate world and took this big leap into what sounds like quite the unknown and to just try all these different businesses in the first place takes a lot of courage, I think. So what gave you the confidence that you could make that happen? And, and where did you really start in terms of that journey then? That's an interesting question. So I've, I've always liked to travel, doing different things. Um, as I said, left home when I was only 17 to go to a different island. And at the time, that was a different experience. Finished university and went to Australia. And basically, I've always enjoyed doing new things. So part of the reason for jumping was I just said I didn't didn't have the heart to, to do all that work for my team or to lay off on my team. And the company was just contracting and it wasn't unpleasant. So there was like a there was a bit of a pain motivated there as well. Mm. But I managed to save up a bit of money and I set myself basically a sum of money and said, look, once this is gone, I'm gonna come back to work. If I can't make it work. <laughs> so to me it was like a, it was like a, an upper limit. So mm. I sort of set aside the sum of money. So in my mind I'd already spent it. I'm like, I want this money to last between one and three years. And if it runs out earlier, I'll come back earlier. But obviously, I tried not to make it run out. And I spent a long time saving that money. And I was working in Perth, Australia at the time. The money was pretty good. So I had a bit of money in the bank. But the other thing was, I was about to turn 40. And I was like, you know, it's, it's a major milestone. And I'm like, if I don't do this now, I never will. Mm. So there's almost like, there's almost two pain points. Yeah, that's, a, I'm sure, a huge <laughs> motivator and a huge uh, enabler of this type of opportunity. Um, enabler, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and and to your point, I mean, I, I think almost that there's, uh, I don't know if if you've seen this, but I feel like in a lot of the the media and content out there right now, as the idea of becoming a digital nomad has become even more prevalent and, and top of mind for folks as an, a different alternative for a way to live and, and travel and, and work around the world, is that it seems to be almost more geared toward, uh, I don't know, people in their 20s, let's say, but obviously that's not just the case. And, um, you know, it's great to be able to share that message as well, which you you were, uh, you know, about to turn 40 there and decided that this was a big change that you wanted to make in your life. So ha- have you, I, I don't know, felt that in terms of, um, I mean, have you seen a lot of people going sort of later in their careers to try to make this happen? Or do you, how, how do you feel about that in terms of the way that it's kind of portrayed, I guess? I would say being a digital nomad is is definitely an early twenties, uh, sorry, a late twenties, early thirties uh, mindset. So most people doing that, they've they've had a bit of corporate career potentially, um, and jumping off doing their own thing. Having said that, there are outliers. There's a few outliers in the early twenties who are just starting out a new business and maybe did not even go to university. And there's a few people like me in their late thirties, but we're pretty few and far between. It's it's less of a number, mm-hmm. and particularly I'd say with women over past early 30s there's not many women over early 30s doing it i think the, the draw of children mm-hmm. and families is, is a lot having said that there are a few families doing the nomad thing but not that many at all like relatively relatively speaking so yes right. i do occasionally feel a bit old you know doing, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, i don't i don't mean to point to that but you know what i mean just in terms of uh in the way that it's portrayed because i think a lot of people might look at it and say Oh, you know, yeah, that's a young person's game. I can't do that. But actually, I think, you know, there's plenty of opportunities. And, and for that it, matter, it totally you created can. your own, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's a young person's game on the outside, but it totally isn't. Like, anyone can do this. The older you get with a bit more money, particularly, you know, you can stay in nicer places, you can go to a nicer city, 
travel a bit more. You don't need to spend, you know, um, $5 a night on accommodation and ramen noodles. So there is that. I mean, I would say definitely you can do it when you're older. There's no real thing. And once again, with a family, particularly if you're a bit older again, um, with teenage kids who have left home, then that's that's another freedom. That's another great time to, to jump off and, and travel around. So in terms of your business, then you were trying these different ideas. And uh, it sounds like in your previous then corporate career, you... I mean, of course, had gained some skill sets over your years working in the corporate world, but I'm curious how you were able to try to leverage those into your new business ideas, or if you really had to kind of start from scratch to be able to, uh, you know, make an, make your own business in an online fashion that would allow you to have this lifestyle. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, actually. So I made a rookie mistake up the front and assumed that to do a to be a digital nomad, I had to do digital nomad type businesses. Mm. So I did. I jumped on the deep end. I changed things markedly. I'd been working as a consultant in, in, in the engineering field prior to that. And that job, I couldn't take on the road. It was the client, the nature of the clients are very honest. I want to say dinosaurs, essentially, out of sight, out of mind. So if I wasn't in the city they were in, they, they just thought I was at the beach doing nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah, I actually demonstrated that. I went, I moved from a major city to a beach an hour's drive away and they thought I was on the beach all the time. I'm like, no, I'm sitting in my office in the cold air conditioning doing work for you. Like I know, the beach is just here, but I'm not seeing it. Right. So, but to go back to your question in terms of what, how I actually managed the, the, the leap. So I did all these nomad businesses and I'm, I, what I should have done or what I recommend to everybody else is to take something you're good at and jump into doing that. Hmm. And that's where I've come to now. I've done a full circle and come back to consulting. This is largely COVID driven. Um, I had to go back to my roots and I've leveraged the skills that I've learned in terms of managing teams, uh, particularly remote teams and building businesses up from, from a lower level. And now that I'm offering that, I'm offering that as a consulting service mm. to other small businesses. I'm trying to leverage large business expertise and provide that service to small businesses. Nice. That sounds like, yeah, a good full circle experience for you. It does. And the people I know who have been most successful in, as nomads have basically taken part of what they've done or part of what they're good at and leveraged that into a service mm. or a product. Right, right. So you mentioned when we were talking at the very beginning there about some of the main countries that you've you've gone to, um, you know, more times uh, than than some of the others. So, what was the main reason for you to go to those different countries? Was it just that you liked the vibe and the, the lifestyle there? I mean, I'm sure there was some element of the the other nomads and and you know um, you know entrepreneurial community as well. So, what was it that drew you back to these particular places? To start with my journey, I certainly was focused on two things. One was the nomad community and the other was cost of living or the lack thereof. So Chiang Mai was one of my first ones and then Bali as well. So they were both uh, well-established nomad communities. The big thing with those countries is you can live like a king for very little money. Mm-hmm. And it's everything's easy. So for example, in Thailand, you can and Bali is almost the same. You can rock up and on the first day, you can hire a motorbike with or without a license. Um, you can get accommodation just by walking around. Um, you can get a SIM card at the airport, cash out, and straight away you're like you can be on the ground running within four hours. And in fact, when I go, when I go back to Thailand now, I don't even book in advance. I just have a few hotels, you know, a few places I like to stay, and literally within an hour of arriving, I've just driven around. I've got a motorbike, run around to a few different places. Just ask in person if they have accommodation in space. If they haven't, I go to somewhere else. And like within a couple of hours, I'm, I'm sorted on the ground. And so Thailand and Bali are both very good at that. Thailand's a bit easier. And Bali as well. They're both warm, warmish places, pleasant to be in. And as you said, the nomad community, which is a massive draw for me. Mm. And similarly, I've just spent a year and a half in Da Nang, um, largely due to COVID. 
the reason I went to Da Nang was that's where my friends were. So the friends that I went with were there. Mm-hmm. Over time, I've changed a little bit. And when I went to other countries, I wanted to go to countries that I hadn't been to before. Mm-hmm. I went to Serbia, for example, to Belgrade by myself. But because nomads are nomads, I had friends follow me. They're like, oh, you're there. Mm-hmm. But one friend came, another friend came. And sure enough, within a week, there was 10 people there. Because mm-hmm. they just needed one person to put up their hand and say, let's try here. Right, right. Yeah, and that's great that you can sort of build that community and have it follow you around or you can follow them. But how did you build those initial connections? I mean, of course, if you land in a in a digital nomad hotspot, you can sort of imagine that there are going to be a number of other people there. And and there's a natural you know uh, situation where maybe you, you are in the same co-working space as somebody else. But do you have any tips for people about how they can start to build that network that you've developed over the last several years? The biggest tip you've just said, go to a nomad hotspot. And mm. that's, that's Chiang Mai, that's Changu Bali, it's, it's Medellin, it's Mexico City, um, potentially even Lisbon and Porto and a few other places. And as, as you said, it's co-working spaces first and foremost. It's joining sports teams. Um, if you do something in particular, then find out a like, little group. And it's getting involved. Um, join a class. In Vietnam, for example, with COVID, all my friends left for COVID. I was all there by myself. And once we got the first lockdown, I had, I had zero friends. So I'm like, I've mm. always wanted to dance. So I'm like, cool. I've got social classes, Googled that. There's a social class in two days. And I've done that for the last year and a half. And that to me was a, a real a good window into like the local community. So there's a lot of expats mm-hmm. there, a lot of locals. And every every town or city, every major major population base has something like that. So what I suggest is just grab something you enjoy doing. If you enjoy playing some sort of football, um, I started playing Ultimate Frisbee. You know, just, I just said yes. So some friends, one friend I knew was like, oh, do you want to play Ultimate Frisbee tomorrow morning first thing? I'm like, sure. I have never done it before. And I played that for a year as well. Hmm. And so things just happen organically. The hardest thing is is starting. Right. Um, you know, CrossFit's another one. Maybe, hmm. you know, ecstatic dance in Bali. Just just join some things that are going on. And Facebook groups are also very useful. So jump hmm. into a city, you know, just search Facebook for, you know, expat group in whatever city you're in. And there's usually a couple of good leads there as well. Hmm. And then things happen organically. So it sounds like for many years there, you were living sort of tourist visa to tourist visa. And I can imagine there were some challenges with that. So I'd love to hear about your experience there, but also why you didn't ultimately decide, uh, at least up until that point or up until, you know, maybe more recent months to try to be more focused in a certain location and settle down per se, or at least to have it be your home base and then travel from there as opposed to just constantly on the move. Once again, great questions. I did leave tourist visa to tourist visa, and it was a pain in the neck. I spent six years, no more than three months in any one place. But having said that, I did a couple of places um, like Thailand and Bali both. We did what they call visa runs. And a visa run is essentially you're living somewhere, you've got to leave the country for a day or two um, or even less, and then come back to the same country. So, so for example, in Thailand, I was actually there for five months at one stage. It was two visas. So visa, visa is just something we have to deal with all the time. Something you have to be aware of, something you have to check when you arrive in the country to make sure you got the right visa. But visa runs are great. Like I was in Bali, I got the wrong visa. Inadvertently, I was tired and I didn't check. The stamp was unreadable. And after two weeks, I realized instead of getting a two-month visa, I got a one-month visa and I was planning on being there for six weeks. So I went to Perth, Australia for lunch. That was a, a 15-hour detour <laughs> just for a, a visa run, 500 bucks, and the visa office gave me the wrong stamp. So those things are all annoying. They're expensive, mm. they're time-consuming. But in terms of why I didn't settle down, like I just didn't feel a need. Chiang Mai has always drawn me back because mm-hmm. of the, largely for the community and the ease of living there. 
so having sort of bases, I didn't have a, a specific base, but mm. like I had places that I liked. Like I just keep going back to those places. I had one good story in, in Vietnam. I just went to Vietnam for a few weeks on my, on my first year out. And as I was sitting at a breakfast table and a, and a backpackers and there's two Canadians were there and they were like, oh, what are you doing today? I'm like, I don't know. I've got to go to the embassy to try and get a new visa to go back into Thailand. And like, it's cool. So we see you tonight. I'm like, oh no, tonight I'm, I'm moving. They're like, where are you moving to? Like, well, I don't know yet. I'm just going to walk down the road and find somewhere. And they're like, what if you can't get the Thai visa? When's it, when's it due? I'm like, well, it's due tomorrow. I need it back by tomorrow is when I have to leave Vietnam. I leave um, Vietnam. And these guys were stunned. They opened me off shock. I'm like, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, worst case scenario, I want to fly to Malaysia where I don't require a visa and I can just stay welcome you with open arms for three months. And mm-hmm. having that flexible mindset was, was very useful as well. Let's yeah. go with the flow. Yeah. I think now with COVID, a lot of people are developing something similar. Right, right. I mean, do you do you feel like it's so uh, as easy now to go with the flow given this situation? I mean, in some sense you have to, but <laughs> at least in my own travels, just you know, for fun and so on. I mean, the little bit that I've been able to do, it's always been a lot more, uh, you know, tests and processes and paperwork and headaches. Oh, absolutely, and concern, it's like concerns that I'm, you know, wanting to deal with. Exactly, and like traveling now, it can be a nightmare. Like I'd still encourage people to do it. But it's much, much harder. But as you said, you have to go with the flow now. Right. Things just change at the last minute. Countries locked down, they open up. So it's, yeah, it's much harder now. And hopefully within six or eight months, things will settle down a little bit. But it is yeah, hard. Absolutely. It's not impossible. I've been on six yeah. flights this year already, sort of yeah. inadvertently. Um, six countries in the last six months. So it's, it is doable for sure, hmm. even now. Where have you been in that time? Just to get a sense of you know what's what's been possible for you in this scenario. Well, I started off in Vietnam. I went to Romania in Eastern Europe, um, Netherlands, England, Mexico, and I'm currently in New Zealand. Having said that, New yeah. Zealand is very hard to get to. I'm a citizen, and it took me almost a year to get back here. So that that one doesn't really right. apply to most people. <laughs> yeah, I was curious about your experience uh, dealing with that, as I've heard you know plenty of stories from other folks about the challenges of getting back into New Zealand. So, I'm um, you know, do you do you have any particular perspective on it, or you know, how does it feel, of course, to actually after almost a year of trying to make it back to be able to do so? Oh, it feels great to be back. It's super frustrating. Um, I don't have good things to say about how New Zealand handled the, the situation <laughs> in terms of, of terms of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say, but I'm, I'm not going to say much here. But yeah. it was very frustrating. <laughs> was a short answer. I mean, it is getting easier now for Kiwis as of today. They re- relax the rules a little bit, but it's, it's very unusual to be able to have like a passport that's quite well accepted around the world, mm-hmm. and your own country doesn't welcome you in. Right. So July last year, for example, I was kicked out of Vietnam. They had Vietnam had a basically a tourist cleanse. So all the extensions they'd be giving out, they said, no more extensions, you've got to go. Mm. And New Zealand says, basically, you can't come home. Mm. So I'm looking at my passport going, where can I go in the current restrictions? Vietnam only had three, three airplanes leaving to three cities. So I'm like, I have to go to one of those three cities. And which one is it? Which one will it take me? Um, I went to Eastern Europe because Western Europe I couldn't get to at the time because mm. the vaccines didn't exist in Vietnam. So we, we were all unvaccinated because we mm. just couldn't get it. And then that obviously limited right. our options for travel as well. But very frustrating. Um, there's talk the New Zealand government will change as a result of how they handle the pandemic. Because people like me, we have mm-hmm. grandmas and mothers and fathers and parents and sisters, all those sort of things that we just haven't been able to come back and see. Like, and I'm not a, I don't feel like I was hard done by too much, but other families have had children they haven't been able to see for a year and a half. Right. So husbands and wives haven't been able to see their children, which I think is terrible. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but luckily for me, New Zealand is a great passport around the world, so I've been able to go other places. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine it's uh, it's been difficult even for me being able to go back. Thankfully, to the United States and visit my family was great, but my wife is Japanese. We haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I mean, it doesn't mean it's maybe impossible. You know, you have to check all the regulations, but just in terms of the headache of trying to make it work from a paperwork and a quarantine standpoint, um, yeah. you know, just hasn't, hasn't made it possible yet. <laughs> exactly. And it, it is hard. Yeah, it's very frustrating and everything changes on a day, day-to-day basis. So as you were seeing the pandemic uh, evolving, or let's say the very beginnings of it, um, I'm, where I assume you were kind of maybe already in Asia, somewhere over there uh, at the time that it started. So what, how did you view it then? And, and it, of course, it sounds like you ended up going to Vietnam, maybe more uh, on purpose or with a plan as opposed to just getting randomly stuck there. But it'd be good to hear about how that actually evolved for you um, over that time. Absolutely. So I was in I was in Chiang Mai. I've been there for a conference, and I guess early January, two thousand and twenty, there was all this talk about COVID, and Chiang Mai has a number of Chinese tourists, and I was of the view that Thailand was going to be the first place to get COVID after China, which actually it was in the end, and it was coming up to what they call burning season, which is February March is not a great time to be in Chiang Mai, so I was like I was looking for somewhere else to go, and I ended up having an entire year planned out in Europe. I had a number of conferences I was going to go to to speak at, and. Uh, Vietnam, back to Da Nang, I should say, was a city where I had some friends and like the community, and I wanted to go there for six weeks. So I went there for six weeks, and then things started to happen on a global scale, and I, I was like looking for options. I, it became apparent that all the Asian airline hubs were going to close down, so I sat back and like, where do I want to spend the next three months? This is back when we were all young and naive and thought COVID would be over in three months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And I was like, which country will do well? And Vietnam. By that stage, so by February 2020, Vietnam had already had COVID and got rid of it in a small town bordering the Chinese border. So like, Vietnam was doing a great job. Um, I thought New Zealand wasn't going to at the time, and neither was Australia, which is my adopted home. Mm. And I was wrong about New Zealand and right about Australia. So mm. I sort of stayed in Vietnam. I had, t- I had um, all these conferences in Europe that I was going to attend to, and I just didn't have an airline ticket, and I waited, and I waited. And I'm like, I'm just going to wait, see what happens, and things got worse and worse and worse. And then I just like, I'm staying in Vietnam for a couple of months and then I just canceled all my other events. But interestingly, in Vietnam, I, was, I didn't have a visa. I had a visa exemption. There's an Asia-Pacific um, business card that I had. And so I had no visa, which is great. Brilliant for travel. But when I went to renew it, this is after all the airlines had closed down. I literally could not leave Vietnam. There was no flights leaving the country. And I couldn't renew my visa because I didn't have one. Mm. Everybody else is getting visa renewed, and I. They said to me when I when I went to get mine renewed, they said, oh, "You don't have a visa. We can't renew you." And like, I can't leave the country. Like, what do I do? Do I do I stay here illegally? And in the end, Southeast Asia is very easy. So with a with a bit of money, someone finds a way to do something. <laughs> right. So so I ended up getting a proper business visa from my business visa exemption. And like, it's all above board. But it, one person said, "This is too hard and too much money." Another person said, "I can do that for you." Yeah. And then the visa <laughs> And I actually said, I can do it for you. He's like, let me call you back tomorrow to make sure I can do this for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which well, that's, yeah, that's some good service and good help there for sure. <laughs> and yeah, maybe a little money goes a long way. <laughs> it did. It wasn't a little money. I ended up spending about 2000 US dollars over two years for visas to stay in Vietnam. So every yeah. three months we had to do a new visa. And like you'd, you'd put your money in, you'd, you'd put your passport in and you'd, 
you'd be stressed for two weeks until you came back with a stamp on it. But as you said, I guess there was a point where there was this visa apocalypse, I think you called it, where so yes. they, they said, what, what was the situation there that, that led to that? And was it really just like you found out the day of and you had to make a decision then? Or how did that <laughs> roll out? Basically every month, the, there'll be some news article in English or in Vietnamese that someone would translate and say, next month, there'll be no more news. And then when it came down to it, we'd ring, we all had visa agents that we used and we'd ring the agent and they'd go, yes, we think it's going to renew. And then the visa agent goes, we're not sure, but we think, we think you'll be okay. And then I had a phone call one day, I was on the beach and I just, I just decided I was going to stay another six months in Vietnam to wait for the things to recover. And the very next day, I bought a bit more stuff like office equipment. The very next day, the agent called me and said, Andrew, your visa won't, in two weeks when your visa is coming up for renewal, it won't be renewed. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? Yeah. So I had two weeks and I was like, so I was quite stressed. I, I went to other visa agents to say, is there any way that I can stay? Is there another option that I can do? And the answer was just consistently no. And I had, had a few friends there, obviously, by that stage, and a few long-term friends. I spoke to them. They're like, oh, you should talk to this visa agent. So we got their name. Like, oh, no, that, that is my agent. And then I said to them, you should talk to the visa agent. Oh, no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And there was two <laughs> couples in particular who'd been there for four and seven years, and wow. they, were, they were gone within the week. Wow. They their agent, wow. and the agent's like, no, you won't. This time you won't get a renewal, and your visa is due. And, and it, we only were putting visas in advance, like in a week in advance, for various reasons. But basically, if you didn't, then you'd lost time off the visa. Hmm. And so two couples I know literally had four days to pack up years of life and leave the country. Whereas oh I was actually God. lucky that the visa rules kept changing. Vietnam's notorious for changing the rules. And when I went to put my visa in, I'd, I'd basically sold a lot of stuff. I'd prepared to leave. I had a bit of a plan. And I said to the visa agent, like, literally the day before I had to decide, I'm like, what are the odds if I put my visa application now, what are the odds that I'll get approved? And she's like, 60% you'll get it. I'm like, I think that's enough for me. <laughs> so I actually put it in and I got it. So I actually got another mm-hmm. three months and she said, there's no way you'll get another one. So mm-hmm. I sort of had, I got a three-month window to plan my exit, okay. but, which I did. And then it became apparent that Vietnam was getting a Delta wave and I only used a month of that. And I, pulled, I had a flight booked and I put my flights forward and in the end, Vietnam went into hard lockdown literally the day after I flew out. So that was mm-hmm. that was sheer luck. Yeah, I had a little farewell party on someone's roof, and he said, "Oh, this is my farewell party too." And he was he'd booked a flight four days after mine, or three days the four days after the party. I was flying the next day, and he was four days afterwards. I flew out. They locked down Vietnam, and six months later, that guy's still there oh. because of lockdowns, <laughs> and he managed yeah. to get new extensions. Yeah. I mean, are you glad that you were able to ultimately get out then with that? Uh, I mean, it's nice, I guess, before the lockdown, but at the same time, you know, you, there's so much uncertainty right now. Um, you know, at least you maybe had some chance to potentially, I don't know, stay somewhere longer. Or maybe that's not what you were thinking about at all. Maybe maybe you'd already been in Vietnam long enough. <laughs> no, I actually, I'm actually really grateful to Vietnam. They did a great job handling yeah. the pandemic, met some great people there, and I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to stay. Um, having mm. said that, they had a very tough lockdown just after I left. Mm. Very tough. People had a hard job getting food and they were locked in their houses for weeks. Um, possibly no worse in some places like Spain, but like equally as bad. So I was kind of yeah. glad I didn't see that. Um, but then they opened right back up again and basically they said, look, COVID is still here. We'll keep doing visa renewals. So I've got a bunch mm. of friends that are still there. So I kind of missed that. But having said that, I was super glad to get out and see some friends. So yeah. Vietnam is not allowing any foreigners in. So for a year and a half, I watched my social, social circle just shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And all my circles overlapped. And in the end, like even March last year, I realized that every single social circle I had, that all overlapped at a birthday party that I had. And mm-hmm. there's only like 10 people left. 
Mm. So now I have like two or three friends there and they're still there and there's no, there's no, no friends. So I was super grateful right. for the chance to go to places like London and Mexico City and meet a bunch of people that I haven't seen for two years. Yeah. yeah. And obviously now I'm glad to be back in New Zealand to see the family who I haven't seen for, for a number of years. I'm very happy that I've come back. I'm sure. So what's your plan from here? It sounds like you're then happily in New Zealand for now, which is interesting because, of course, you've made uh, such a career of the last years about going all over the world. But um, what are you planning to stay there in New Zealand for a while or are you quick to think about your next plans to get back on the road? I'm still th- Obviously, I'm still thinking about my next plans to get back on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealand, I'll be here for somewhere around six months, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been so long. Uh, but having said that, you know, I don't really have a network in New Zealand anymore. Mm. So mm. I could start from scratch. But New Zealand is a super expensive place to live. It's kind yeah. of, for the Europeans, it's kind of Switzerland level um, or the Americans at San Francisco level of prices. And I just don't feel like spending that much money and having like not that great service. I'm used to the Asian and Latin American style where, you know, your service is brilliant. And I, and I kind of miss mm-hmm. that already. But I think I'll, I'll probably swing past Australia. I still have a, a life in Australia that I need to keep tabs on. And then I'm thinking potentially um, back to Vietnam, maybe in about six months' time. So it's, it's open. Like, as I said before, I'm just taking things as we go because yeah. of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here for the time being. And I, I, like, I do want, going back to an earlier question, I am looking for a long-term base. Like before COVID, mm-hmm. I, was, I was, had an active plan. I had two countries in Europe that I was looking at, two cities. And then obviously COVID threw those plans out the window. And I saw my, I'm still looking for a long-term place. Like I've been doing this for eight years. And that's more than enough. And now I want to have a base where I can spend <laughs> six to nine months a year and travel for three to six months. Nice. That's yeah. great. So what places are you thinking about potentially settling in more as a home base now, uh, looking forward once we get past this pandemic scenario? But two years ago, I was looking at Valencia in Spain and I was looking at Budapest in Hungary. Mm. And now I'm kind of wondering about um, going back to, I guess, my adopted home in Australia and on the Gold Coast is there so part of the reason in six months i want to go to australia is to go Mm. and look at the suburb and go is this a place i want to live in again or do i have rose tinted glasses on right right so i'm flexible but what i really want is i still want that nomadic community Mm. so i'm still a little bit flexible but i'm like yeah there's a number of places that are great and i'd I'd be happy in in any of those places but obviously visas long-term visas is a major issue Mm. i just come from mexico city and mexico city i actually really enjoyed I'd go back there and I can potentially get a four-year visa for there. In Australia, I can go and live there all the time. Um, Thailand, much harder to go and get a long-term visa there. Mm-hmm. So visas will be right. the make-or-break thing for me in any of those countries. So it sounds like you have some plans or ideas in mind for what's next for you in terms of where you're going to be around the world. But how about your business? Do you think you'll stick with the consulting side of things or try some new business ideas going forward? Uh, in the short term, consulting is, is my main gig. Definitely will stick with that. I I would love to do in the near future to acquire a part stake in a, a SaaS company as mm. well. So that's the medium to long-term view is to, to migrate into SaaS. But like I want to come in as an operations person mm. to basically complement someone who's a marketer, essentially. Yeah, so nice. That's, that's, that's in the next six to, nine, uh, six to 12 months, that particular plan. But consulting up till then, consulting will be the base. For that. Great. So I know that one thing that you mentioned uh, that you could talk a bit about was th- this idea that you can do everything, but not at the same time. And I really like that uh, concept. So I'd love to hear a bit more about it, if you could share that with our listeners as well, uh, what you mean by that and how you've experienced that in your life. So a lot of, I think a lot of us are guilty of trying to do everything at once. New Year's resolutions are a great example. I want to do X, Y, Z, and I'm going to make all these changes starting tomorrow. And that's 
often too much. So I like to think of like life as a linear progression. And you can do a lot of stuff with your life. You can be a successful entrepreneur. You can be a, a triathlete, you know, a musician, whatever you'd like to be. But those all require some dedication. And it's often easier, at least in my experience, to put a lot of time and energy into one or two things, at most three. I think you can do three major things in your life at one time. And that might be a family, um, entrepreneurial, and maybe maybe a sport. And that's it. Any more than that, and the, the first three start to suffer. Mm. So that's essentially what I, I, I'm thinking is like do one thing majorly, one major thing and do it well for a period of time, one year, three years, whatever that is. And then if you want, do something else. But always have one one thing of focus that you're working on at one time. Otherwise, you just tend to spread yourself too thin. I say, so for me, three things is kind of it. Mm. You know, and that's sort of started for university for me. I could do university studies. I played canoe polo as a sport and I had a, I had a girlfriend in another city and that was all I could do. Those three things, that was my life. I couldn't do anything else. And I've sort of stuck with the rule of three since then. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Uh, but how did you, I mean, what were your three, I guess, as you were on the road? I mean, on some level you had to keep an eye on, on your visas and your next plans. And then you also had your business or businesses and sounds like you were also integrating into the social networks there. So were those your three things or, you know, were there anything else uh, in, was there anything else in there that you had to work with? And how did you also manage with relationships? For example, I can imagine that that would be challenging, but also maybe an interesting, uh, you know, third thing for you to work on as well. The first two, as you said, were, um, were obviously the business and the visas. So that was my main focus. The third thing varied a little bit. So sometimes for me, it was fitness. Um, sometimes it was, was social. And sometimes it was relationships. In Vietnam, it was social. I did a lot of salsa dancing, so salsa dancing became my thing. Um, for a while, you know, before that, there was a relationship or two, and that took a bit of time. And having said that, the relationships tended to wrap up with, with travel. So relationships mm-hmm. made travel harder. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up going out with a girl for two years, and she, we, I met her in a nomad community, and we traveled together. But getting two people to, to plan travel together is obviously much harder and having one person, so there was a lot of compromise. Right. But still, it's like, yeah, the third thing for me varied between fitness and social and, and relationships. But the first two were were entrepreneurial and travel. Those were my first two, my first two rocks, as it were. Yeah, relationships can be challenging. There's there's no question about it. You, know, you meet someone fascinating who lives in the city and they don't want to travel, and then you either stay there or you don't, or it comes to an end. There's, there's continual choices to be made, and it, I guess this is everything. There's a lot of the, yeah. the choice muscle gets exercised a lot, and like with a nomadic lifestyle, where to go, where to stay, who to see, what to do. It can be it can be interesting and can be challenging, and the hard the hard thing is actually to try and keep on track with a lot of things. Right, and I think you know keeping on a routine, and whether that's whether it's a fitness thing or or a nomadic thing or whatever it is, even eating, people struggle with keeping a consistent diet, mm. and it can be hard because there's so much choice. Like literally, or before COVID at least, it was literally, you know. 150 countries anyone could travel to at any given time with a bit of work and like where do I want to go do I want to see winter do I want to see summer do I want to do this do you know just choices to be made consistently did you find any particular tricks or methods of being able to help you make those choices because as you said when you have decision between everything I can imagine making any single decision let alone as you said with another person in a relationship uh, very difficult so do you have any uh, experience with, or tips or tricks from your experiences abroad to help us figure that out? The, the main tip I'd say is to have, have a reason to do something. Mm. So for me, I was trying to build a business. So 
places that I, I want to go, I chose the community because I want to build a business. And for me, I was getting more value out of people. So people became more important than places to me. And mm. that's, that's why I ended up in Da Nang as well in Vietnam was because I'm like, where, where is my community going at the moment? And like, I basically went where they were. Mm. So if you are a surfer, for example, then you might prioritize surfing locations. And obviously you'll, that narrows it right down because it's seasonality. So the reason, and different people have different reasons, but I say have, have the overall reason first and that helps narrow it down a lot. And then maybe a secondary reason as well, like maybe cost of living is a focus, um, so the community could be a focus or some outdoor activity. I think snow skiers have it easier because mm. it's very limited where snow is and then ha- having like a town where you can work from near, near a ski field narrows it right down. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have <laughs> sure. like a major sport, a seasonal sport, it, it can be a bit more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing can be languages as well. So if you are a keen language learner, um, you can choose a country based on that. I went to, for example, Mexico because I've, I've done a little bit of travel in my past in Latin America and I want to practice my Spanish. So to me, I'm like, well, that, somewhere along the line, I need to go to Latin America and practice my, my Spanish. So that was, that was part of the reason we're going to Mexico City. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and experiences about this great career you've built as a digital nomad and, and you know, all the different business projects that you've had. It'd be great to know a bit more about where our listeners can find out more about you and what you're up to. Absolutely. So my social media presence is uh, slow, shall we say. So the best place to find me is on my website, andrewventure.com. So that's updated occasionally, and you can reach out to me. on Any listeners can reach out to me on there to ask questions or to have a chat. That'd be great to connect. Yeah, I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you again for all of your insights. Look forward to seeing where your travels take you and wish you all the best. Thank you very much, David. It was great to, great to be here. A pleasure to talk to your listeners. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expatempire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new expat empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how Expat Empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.